There's a war that wages within each of us and within our society, and it's a war that you may not even recognize, but it goes on all around us. Uh, it's a war between what is called legalism and utter immorality. And so, it, you know it, there are two types of people that you can see in the world. And, and one type of person is the person that says, look, you need to follow all of these rules and you need to just work super hard to live life the way that I want you to li- live. And, and a lot of times, Christians get painted with that legalistic attitude, right? And people look at Christians and they say, well, you're all about a set of rules. You're all about making sure that people live just like you and do the things that you want them to do. And, and we've seen this throughout the history of the church, right? And, and you can look back at, at the 1950s. God forgive the people who lived then. But, but there was things that, that they said, look, if you're, a, if you're a good person, you just can't do this. Like, you cannot go bowling. Right. I mean, you can't dance. You can't go to movies. And they start to, to put these rules onto society and say, if you don't do it my way, then you must not be a very good person. On the opposite side of, of this war that rages, sometimes it rages right inside of our, our souls. Right. And we battle with it on a daily basis. But on the other side is people really it's, it's taken off in the 2000s that say, hey, It doesn't matter how you live. The only rule for life is what matters to you. And and they look and they say, hey, you can't put any rules on any people and you you can't set a standard morality for the world because morality simply is what I think is right and what I think is wrong. And this war wages all the time, right? And we see it between Christians and non-Christians, but we see it uh, in other groups of people too. Sometimes within the church even, it's generational. You'll have older people who say, well, you have to do things this way, this way, and this way. And then you see a younger generation who say, well, it doesn't matter how I live. I'll do whatever I want. And we look at this this battle, right? And it's a confusing battle because I think that each of us, if we were totally honest, we can we can kind of say, well, I kind of get where, where each side is coming from. I, I kind of get, you know, that it's a good idea to have rules in place. Society needs those things. And on the other side, you know, it's, it's kind of nice to be free and, and, and to live life the way that you want to live life. And, and, and so we can kind of see the other side's point of view. But for the most part, we just kind of fight with the other people, right? And, and I'll be honest, within, within myself, this is a battle that rages on. I, I, I come from a Christian family, and so with that, you know, there's certain things that, that are expected and wanted, and, and it just feels right to do them. But uh, on the other side, I, I have a tendency to say, well, what the heck? Do some of these things even matter? I mean, what, what does it matter if I do this or this? And, and I can see it even... In the sides of my family, I have a Christian side of my family and, and a side of the family that, that doesn't live for Jesus. And one side tends to be too legalistic. It, it's like, don't get tattoos, don't have a drink of alcohol and things like that. And the other side of my family tends to, tends to do everything. Um, Thanksgiving's a hoot. And, and so I see this, this battle, right? And, and it, it wages even within people that call themselves Christians. But a lot of times, the battle is between people who, who aren't Christians and who are Christians. And, and here's the thing. It's a battle that I think all of us would like to have end. Because I think people that live in this legalistic mindset and say, well, I've got to do this, this, and this, or else I'm not a good person and God won't love me and, and it's just not going to be good enough. People who live like that in that utter fear, I think somewhere inside of them they want to be freed from that. I mean, they just want to be released 
from the pressure of doing everything right all the time. And they're sick of it. But on the other side, people who say, well, morals is all about me and what I do, I think somewhere in them they're going, man, I just wish that I had a moral compass for my life so that I could do things better. Because right now I feel like I'm just, you know, trying to live the way that I think is right, but it doesn't seem good enough, and I'm not very satisfied with the way that I'm living. And so this battle rages, and it's pretty easy to see it all around us, isn't it? And here's the crazy thing. This battle has been raging forever and ever. And when you go to the Bible, you see that this same war was going on in the early church between people who were legalistic and people who were saying, well, I'll just do kind of what I want and live however I want, like God doesn't exist at all. And, and we're going to look at, at Galatians chapter 4, 1 through 7 today, and, and we're going to find the solution to this battle. His name's Jesus, uh, but it will be a little bit more specific. We're going to find the solution, but in order to, to understand Paul's words, who's writing the book of Galatians to a group of people in a city called Galatia, in order to understand his words there, you need to understand kind of the context of the whole book. And really the whole book of Galatians, is written about this battle that's waging in the early church, about whether or not we should follow this strict set of rules and do everything the way that they had always done it, or whether we should just kind of go and be free and do whatever we want. And, and so let me just give you some background information. At the very beginning of the book, uh, Galatians 1, 6 through 9, Paul says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion or trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you have accepted, let them be under God's curse. It's pretty harsh words. I mean, I don't run around just saying, hey, I hope you're under God's curse, right? Have you ever said that to anybody? You're a horrible person if you have. But the truth is, that's, that's a, Paul is like, he's super serious. I mean, he doesn't just throw out God's curse like it's like, oh, you know, I'm kind of angry at you right now. He's saying, if somebody preaches a different gospel to you, or if you accept a different gospel, then let God's curse be on you. Now, when I read this, I mean, without any study, I'm like, wow, the different gospel that these people are preaching it must be horrible. It must be like not a Christian gospel at all. It must be Islam or, you know, something that teaches that there's many ways to heaven or, you know, something just horrible. I mean, I, I, it must just be just this terrible thing. So we read on in the book. We find out what it is that is the false gospel that Paul is saying you need to be cursed if you're teaching it. And it comes through a group called the circumcision group. They're the ones teaching it. That's Paul's word. They're more commonly referred to as the Judaizers. And this was a group of people who were Jewish. They had become Christians, and they were looking at non-Jewish Christians, for example, the people who lived in Galatia, and they were saying, you need to follow the rituals, and you need to follow the laws and the ordinances of the Jewish people. You need to be just like a Jew in order to be a Christian. And so when we hear Paul say, if somebody teaches you another gospel and somebody has taught you another gospel, he's not referring to something besides Jesus, like, hey, there's this guy who lives over there and he can get you into heaven somehow. No, he's talking about a group of people who are simply saying, you need to follow this strict 
set of rules that was laid forth in the Old Testament if you were going to be a Christian. It's really fascinating because if you read the New Testament and you read the works of Paul, and you have this in mind, this, this group of people that he refers to as the circumcision group, you quickly see that much of what Paul says to the Gentile believers that he's writing the books of the Bible to is because this group of people is running around saying, hey, you need to live just like us. You need to wear the same clothes. You need to eat the same food. You need to follow the same laws. You need to celebrate the same holidays. And Paul is writing his books in the New Testament. And a big part of what he's saying is, hey, you don't need to do that stuff. And this is such a big deal to Paul that in Galatians 2, 11 through 13, we read about him confronting a guy named Peter who was also called Cephas. And, and so listen to this. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Now, I just want you to to picture this. I know like we, uh, if you you live now, you look at Paul and he's like a big deal in the Christian church. And a lot of people, you know, it's like you say Christianity and then they're going to think of of Jesus and then they're going to think of Paul, right? But, But when Paul's living, it's like this. You think of Jesus and then you think of Cephas, who's also known as Peter. Peter is the head honcho. Peter is the guy who hung out with Jesus. Peter is the guy who was one of Jesus' three best friends on the planet of earth. Peter is the guy who Jesus said, hey, I'm going to build my church on you. Peter is the first leader of the early church. He's a leader amongst the 12 disciples who were like the leaders, and he is the top of them. Peter is the first person to say that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ who came to save the world. I mean, we're talking, this is a big deal. This is like the guy, right? Of all Christianity at that time, he is like the person. And Paul felt so strongly about the fact that Peter was listening to the circumcision group and following into their traps saying, well, I can't hang out with you even though you're a Christian because you're a Gentile and you don't live just like me. And so, I, you know, I can't be associated with you because how will that look and what will God think about me? He feels so strongly about that that he confronts Peter to his face. That's a big deal. I mean, that's like me. Pastors this church walking up to Billy Graham and saying, Billy, you're doing it wrong. I mean, hey. And there's nothing he's ever done that I would feel so strongly about to have that conversation, right? And Paul is like, hey, Peter, I don't care who you are, but you're messing this up because you're falling into the trap of legalism. You go, well, why is, why is it such a big deal for Paul? I mean, why, why does he care so much that he'd confront Peter and then he calls it a different gospel altogether? I mean, really, if we think about it, who cares if people who aren't Jews celebrate Hanukkah? Right? I mean, who cares about that? And, and who cares if, if those early Christians who weren't Jews wanted to dress like the Jewish people? I mean, what is the big deal? And we say, well, who cares if, if they wanted everybody to get circumcised? And then we think, wow, that's a big deal. Paul, why is that such an important thing to you? And the answer lies in, in Galatians 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? For Paul, this is a big deal. 
Because if the Gentiles, the non-Jews, have to follow the Jewish law, then all of a sudden they are believing that they are working their way into a relationship with God. For Paul, it is all about the faith in Jesus and what he did that gets a person saved. And so to say, hey, by the way, you need to believe that Jesus died for your sins and you need to follow the Old Testament law is for Paul a false gospel. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he makes it more clear. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul's looking at the Galatian people and he's saying, if you believe the lies of the circumcision group, if you believe that you need to do these things to have a relationship with God, then it's a false gospel because the true gospel says that you cannot work your way into heaven. It does not matter how well you live your life. The only way to get into heaven is to believe that Jesus came here to this earth and died on a cross and rose again after three days in order that he might pay the punishment of your sin and conquer death. And so for Paul, this is a huge deal. He says legalism is horrible because it tells people that if they don't live a certain way, then they cannot get into heaven. But Jesus has said belief in him is what gets you into heaven and starts a relationship with him. Now, everybody here that's on the immoral side, like, hey, I told you. I told these Christians. I mean, this, it's, I told them that legalism is bad, right? I mean, there, maybe some of you are like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. You tell those legalists. But, but Paul isn't done because... He has more to say, and he has something to say to the other side. He says uh, in Galatians 4, 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. And so he looks at the group of, of people in Galatia. And this is a group of people who worshipped idols, and, and they were Romans, and so that comes along with a lot of immorality. I mean, uh, it, things were rampant. Even pedophilia was rampant in their society. It was looked on as good. And so he looks at these people at, in Galatia, and he says, Hey, before you knew Jesus, you were slaves to something else. Utter immorality. And here, what he specifies is that they were worshipping false gods, and they were slaves to worshipping little stone-made gods. And so they would have to bring that god, their feasts and their offerings and things like that. And so he looks at these people and he says, Hey, before Jesus, you were slaves to something else, and that was no morality at all. It was a worship of false gods and self and sexuality and so many things that are wrong with the world. And then... That's not good enough for you. In Romans 6, 16 through 18, he, he makes that even more clear. And here's what he says. He says, you used to be slaves to sin. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So Paul says here, hey, if you don't know Jesus, if you're not a Christian, then you are slaves to the very sins that you commit. This is pretty common in the New Testament. It's a common theme, and it's just basically over and over we read that people who don't know Christ cannot avoid the sins that are in their lives. They can't stop doing things that are wrong. They have no hope to not get caught up in the cursed world that we live in. And a lot of people that are, aren't Christians, they like to say audibly, you might know people like this, oh, I love being free, 
I love to be able to do whatever I want. But when you get down in the in the grossness of their lives and you really examine it and, and when they really examine it, when they go home at night and they stop and they think, they, they recognize that they're actually slaves to the things they're doing. They're slaves to the next party because they, they need to get drunk again or they're slaves to looking good because they got through this day looking good and making everybody think that they're cool or whatever and then the next day they have to wake up and they need to do it again. Or they're slaves to their addictions or they're slaves to, to whatever it is that makes them feel good inside. And so they live their whole lives. Maybe some of you live your whole lives saying, wow, I have to get up again today and I have to give in to this thing and I have to, to make it work because I need to feel good and I want to keep it going and it doesn't feel that good if I ever stop. And so the Bible tells us quite clearly that that we, if we don't know Jesus, are even more of slaves than those who do know Jesus. Makes it quite clear. And then Paul, interestingly, after he he is shooting down the laws and, and this legalism the whole time in Galatians 5, near the end of the book, 16 through 21, he says, If you bite and devour each other, watch out, for you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the Spirit. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are at conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And here everybody who's a legalist goes, I told you. I mean, I'm telling you, you need to follow those rules or else you cannot get into heaven. You think, Paul's doing a terrible job of ending this war, right? Because he seems to be building it up, but he's contradicting himself. And in Galatians 4, 1 through 7, I really believe that we see the answer to it. Let me just give you the immediate context right before Galatians uh, 4, 1 through 7. If you go back to chapter 3, this is what Paul says. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You say, well, that's not true. I mean, there's still male and female, and there's still Jew and not Jew. And what Paul is talking about here is the fact that we have all come under something if we give our lives to Christ that is neither legalism nor is it immorality. And here's his explanation beginning in in verse 1. As long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. This is a pretty simple point, right? I mean, we know it to be true in our lives. If you were told by your your dad at a young age, hey, someday I'm going to give you the reins to this business and you're going to be a quadruple trillionaire and, and, and your life is going to be just so full of money, but you have to start working at this company, it wouldn't matter until you turned legal age, which for us is 18. For the Roman Empire, it was 14, and then they had a, another age where they kind of put their big boy pants on at 21. Uh, and so they, they had their ages. We, we pick 18. We would know that, hey, I'm not going to get those things. I'm not going to have the power and the privilege and the ability to do what I want with my money until I turn 18 and my father hands the reins to me. For the Roman people, it was, it was that way. And, and even more so is they had people 
over them in the rich families. And so you would have a tutor who would tell you what to do in your regular life and, and would teach you school and make sure that you get up and, and live a good life every single day. And then when you uh, and then you had a business person that would oversee a trustee of sorts who would oversee the business aspect of things until you became an adult. And so this analogy makes sense to us and to them because Paul is saying, hey, before you're an adult, you're still told what to do by your parents. You don't have the power to do whatever you want. You have the same rights, in essence, as a slave, right? And, and slaves back then were treated much better. Don't think of American slaves when you, when you read the word slave here because they were treated poorly. But, but in, in the Roman uh, world, they were treated much better than, than Americans treated their slaves in the 1800s. And so, so he looks at them and he says, look, you don't have any more right until you come of age than, than a slave does. He continues, so also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Now here he, he makes it spiritual and he begins in, into the spiritual aspect of things. He says, look, before the time came, you were just under the elemental forces. And, and here's the thing, there's some debate over what the elemental forces are. But in the book, I think we see that it's two things. I think the elemental forces first is the Old Testament law that the legalists are trying to make the Galatians live out. And I think that's one thing that he has in mind. And some commentaries you read will say, well, this is the Old Testament law and it's the Jewish way of doing things and all the religious rites and all the holidays and all the food and all of that. That's what Paul is talking about here. And I think Paul has that in mind. On one side, he's saying, hey, before you came of age, which we'll talk about in a minute, you were under the slavery of the Old Testament law. It was something you had to fulfill on a daily basis. The other idea for the elemental forces, and I think it's good for us to have it in mind, is the, the Galatians' lives before they came to Christ. They were under the law, the elemental forces of all of the sin that was in their lives. The things that they needed to do to feel fulfilled every day. And I think what Paul is saying is if you were a Jew... Or you are a non-Jew, it doesn't matter, because before you came of age, you were a slave. And I think specifically, he looks at the Jewish people here, and he says, Hey, before Christ, when you were under age, you were a slave to your law. And so don't look at this group of Galatians who were slaves to, to all of their sins and judge them. And, and then here says this in verse 4, But when the time, when the set time had fully come. Now this is the time. When God sends Jesus to the world, verse 4. It's a fancy way of saying that. But here's the thing. It's, it's just interesting. This is kind of a side note for you this morning. When God sent Jesus, it was perfect timing. It was perfect timing for so many reasons. The Roman government had expanded things like the roads and the ability to pass communication through the airwaves and it set up cities. And so when God sends Jesus, it's like the perfect time for the gospel of Jesus to spread to the whole world. And so I believe that when Paul says this here, he's not just saying like, hey, when Jesus came, but he's saying when God knew it was the best possible time in the history of the world, that is when he sent Jesus. And then it says, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. So here it is, Christmas, right? And it's very interesting what he says here about Christmas and the importance of Christmas. And our series right now is Christmas Matters. And our goal is to say, why did the life of Jesus matter? 
I mean, we jump right to the death so often, but why was it important that Jesus lived? I mean, why wasn't he born, uh, stillborn, and, and he would have saved us just the same? But, but we want to know, why does it matter that this baby was born and lived on this earth? And we see one of those reasons right here. It says, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, born of a woman is just a fancy way of saying that he was a human being, right? I mean, it's just, it was an idiom for the Jewish people to say he was a human. So, but he makes it clear, he was born a human, and... He was born under the law. So here's the thing. Jesus was born under the curse of legalism. He needed to follow a million different laws that the Jewish people had, some of which were from God, but most of which were from men who made them later. A group of people called the Pharisees had thousands of laws that they had made based on a few laws that God had given and said, look, if you don't do this, 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 and this, then you cannot be a good person. And so Jesus is born under the slavery of that law. But the Bible tells us, and this is what Paul is talking about here, that Jesus was able to perfectly fulfill the law. You see, Jesus, while he was under both sets of laws, there's a law that says you need to give in to sin, and there's a law that says you need to follow the law, and Jesus was down here born as a human being, and born under that law, both aspects of it he was able to fulfill the law perfectly and never one time given to the slavery of sin living an utterly perfect life you see what he says here paul says hey jesus had both of the pressures he had the pressures of being a normal human being apart from relationship with jesus where it's hard not to give in to sin but yet he never did give in to sin and he was born under this religion of the Jewish people that said, you need to do this, this, and this. And guess what? He was able to fulfill that perfectly. Jesus came down here out of heaven where he was God and said, look, I won't give in to your legalism and I won't give in to your wretched sin. I will live perfectly. And because he did that, it tells us here, he was able to redeem those who were under the law. Jesus was able to conquer both the legalism and the immorality because he came down underneath it, but never gave in to either of them, fulfilling the law not getting rid of it, and yet avoiding sin perfectly so that you and I could be bought back and and we could give our lives to Christ. And here's how Paul describes redemption, and I love it, that we might receive adoption to sonship. That's just a crazy thing. I mean, just picture what he is saying here. He is saying that Jesus is the Son of God, and he is in heaven with God the Father. And God the Father looks down at us and says, those people are under the law and they are slaves to their sin and there is no hope for them because they will die that way. But I will send my child down there in order that they can be my children forevermore. And so Jesus comes down here and last week we talked about how Jesus willingly said, I will become obedient even to death on a cross. But here we read that the Father was part of it too and the Father sent Jesus, His very own Son, to the earth so that we could become God's children. So the answer to this battle that wages between between legalism and immorality and it wages everywhere around us and it wages within us, right? I mean, some days we're like, I just need to do this and some days we're like, I just don't care and I, it doesn't matter. The answer to that is Jesus and the fact that He offers you The ability not to be somebody who is under the dictatorship of a mean God, 
nor to be somebody who is under, under a God who does not care about how we live, but looks down upon us, says, you are my children, and I care about how you live. But I will never turn my back on you. I will never forsake you. I won't hate you when you mess up, because I love you, and I loved you so much that I gave my child so that you would, could become my child. We look at this battle and everybody wants it to be one side or the other, right? Either you follow these rules or you don't care about the rules at all. And Paul says the answer to that is that Jesus came under both of those, lived perfectly. And then he died on a cross. He died so that you could become God's child. And now you can be a child of God who comes out from both of those sides and says, No, it's not about me following rules and it's not about me living any way I want. It's about me trying to be obedient to my Father who is God because I know He wants the absolute best for me. I love how Paul finishes this. Verse 6, let me read it again. Because you are His sons, God sent, his, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts and the Spirit who calls out, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And the word Abba oftentimes gets associated with a, with a child who looks at their daddy, and that's the word that sometimes people translate it. But the word has nothing to do with infancy. It actually has to do with intimacy. And so it's a word for a very intimate relationship between a father and a son. It's a term that that had never been used in that way for somebody who's talking to God. It had been referenced, but but as far as somebody's interaction with God until Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus shows up and he starts praying, he's like, Hey, Abba, Father. God who I am so close to that it's like a great relationship with the dad. And then the New Testament starts to apply this word to Christians' lives because it recognizes the change in relationship. It's no longer one where God doesn't know us or care about us and it's no longer one where he has his iron fist just waiting to, to punish us when we mess up. But now we are his children. And the early church recognized the difference was so strong in Christians and the way they viewed God coming out from the legalism and the immorality. And so the defining thing about them when people would come into their presence is that they prayed, Abba, Father. That's how they began their prayers because that concept was so important to them. So what I want you to hear today, I'm guessing that you lean one way or another. I'm guessing that you've either been a person who says, look, I need to do this, this, and this, and if I don't, then, then I'm, it's bad and God won't like me very much. And, and you maybe, if you're a legalist, you've probably told somebody else that they need to be just like you. I think it just makes you feel better. And it's like, hey, you need to do this, this, and this so God will like you. Or, or if you're over here and you're like, hey, it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter what I do. I, I don't care. It's all about me. And if it feels good, I'll do it. And nobody can tell me what to do because it, it doesn't matter. If you're on either side of that, what I asked this morning is that you would look at the baby Jesus who came here under both of those things but yet lived perfectly to give you sonship to the Father. And you would say, I will not be either of those, but I will live my life as a child of the King because that is what Jesus offered to me when he came to this earth. It is no longer a war when we become Christians, even though we make it that way sometimes. It is no longer a war. It it is something that is so simple. God loves us like his child. I told you all this before. I have a great relationship with my dad, and I, I recognize every time I get up here and I talk about God as Father that some people in the congregation, some people who listen to me here or online go, I don't want God to be like my dad. My dad sucked. All the legalists just said, he said sucked. 
I don't want him to be like my dad. My dad was an alcoholic. My dad was a workaholic. My dad wasn't around very much. Why is God like that? But here's, here's the deal. I'm sorry you had a bad dad. But you can't, you can't make a bad dad the picture of God in your life. You have to make a good dad. And it makes no more sense to look at a cheetah with a broken leg and assume that the analogy of somebody being fast like a cheetah means that they're slow than it does to look at a bad dad and say, wow, the analogy of God as a dad means that he's not very good. And here's the deal. My dad is here and he's fantastic. And I can tell you this. I'm sorry if you had a bad dad, but I had the greatest And I've been around some other guys in our church that are fantastic dads to their children. And when you look at them, no matter what dad you had, you you begin to understand what God is like and the way he cares about you. It's not that he's sitting there going, you better do this or you better do this or I won't love you anymore and I won't like you the same. Because my dad will love me no matter what. If I was in prison right now, instead of preaching a sermon, my dad would love me just the same. But yet, my dad wants certain things from me. And he guides my life. Even now at 29 years old, he still guides my life. And he tells me when I'm doing something dumb. And he tells me when I should be doing something different. And he gives me advice when I want it. And he's always there to guide and lead me. And that is what God is like. He is not a God who says, I want to just punish you every time you mess up. He's a God that says, I love you. But I don't want you to be slaves to just the wretchedness of the world either i want to help lead you and guide you and let you live the life that i have designed for you and i hope that each of you this morning when you think about jesus coming here will remember that that what happened is that god sent his child so that you can be a child and you no longer have to worry about legalism or total and utter immorality but you can be a child of the king will you pray with me lord i just thank you so much that you came down here jesus to to break the bonds of legalism and immorality. Lord, and you know that we each, each and every one of us, God, fight that battle, it seems like, within us. And sometimes it's like a day-to-day thing, God. It's like I wake up one morning and I'm like, I better do all this stuff. And I wake up the next morning and and I'm like, oh, what does it matter how I live today? It's no biggie. I'll be fine. And Lord, I pray that, that for every one of us here, everybody who will listen online, God, that that we would just be people who look at you as our father and not as our dictator or not as some God who wound up the world and disappeared, God, but we would look at you as as someone who loves us and cares about us. And, Lord, I would pray for everybody, God, listening, that that they would they would give their lives to you because, God, apart from you, they're fighting one of those two battles. They're trying to work their way into a relationship with you or they're not caring at all about a relationship with you and they're just they're slaves to their sin. And I pray that, God, anybody here right now that, that doesn't know you and doesn't have a relationship with you and isn't a child of yours would become a child of yours today, God, or in the near future. Lord, I pray that, that you would help Christianity in our country to find this balance, God, Because it seems like when you look at one group, one denomination, one church, they're always on one end of this spectrum, God. But I pray that the American church would, would demonstrate our relationships to you. And it wouldn't be about, God, one side or the other, but it would be about showing people what it's like to be a child of the God of the universe, which is a special and awesome privilege. Lord, I pray for every person here, God, that they would just, they would leave here, God with a new sense of peace, God, because, because they don't have to be slaves to the world or slaves, God, to a set of rules, but they can be your children. 
Jesus, I finally, I just want to thank you for being willing to come here. And, and Father, I, I, I thank you for sending your child so that I could be your child. That's it's just unbelievable, Lord, that you would do that for us. Pray these things in your name. Amen.